Hello, I'm Bill Peschel, and this is Mechanicsburg Mystery Presents, A Conversation with Karen Oden. Karen is the author of five books, all set in Victorian Britain. There are three standalones featuring a female amateur detective and two in the Inspector Michael Corvin series, of which the latest is Under a Veiled Moon. Karen earned a PhD in literature at New York University, and her dissertation on 19th century railway disasters formed the background for her debut novel, A Lady in the Smoke, which was a USA Today bestseller. She's a member of Sisters in Crime and the Mystery Writers of America, and she lives in Scottsdale, Arizona with her husband and two children. Karen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Absolutely. I'm very much looking forward to talking with you. I have a, uh, I have a fondness for history and particularly Victorian history. And I think probably one of the best uh, descriptions of what you do and how you approach your work is that you write as if Charles Dickens is writing a mystery. The level of detail you put in to your books is, and I mean the kind of personal detail um, when you're talking about um, say an under under the veiled moon about this is involving a uh, shipwreck on the Thames, the Irish dynamite campaign against England, political maneuvering, even down to priest holes in churches in London. You seem to have a very good grasp on information. Um, is that is that something you have always been interested in? My interest in Victorian London actually began my first year in grad school. Uh, I took a very good Victorian novel writing class with a gifted professor named Carolyn Dever. And I was lucky that, uh, that you know, I became interested in the Victorian era. And I was lucky that NYU had a very deep roster of professors. There were four of them, actually, all in Victorian and and I found one of them who would, you know, be willing to do my, you know, to work on my dissertation with me. And I think that because my because my dissertation really was about Victorian railway disasters and the representations of them in medical literature, legal literature, newspapers, magazines, periodicals, cartoons, poems, songs. I mean, they were everywhere. It was kind of a national obsession with railway crashes, kind of the way that we feel about um, maybe hacking now. It's kind of something that we we kind of live with it. We know about it. We guard against it. We talk about it, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, that's like the closest analogy, I guess. And because I was doing so much research into the history I started getting my fingers on all kinds of other primary material. And you know, the Victorian era is astonishing because, I mean, one of the great things about it is there's a lot available and a lot of people were writing, they were keeping journals and and you know, writing op-ed pieces for the papers. I mean, and all this kind of stuff. So you had all sorts of information readily available. And then if you actually go to London, London itself still has I mean, Victorian London is still very much present. Um, the city speaks to you. It has plaques and and little little markers everywhere. This person lived here, and this is what he did, and you know, the, and this is where this bomb happened, and this bridge was built on so and so a date, and so the city talks to you. And a lot of it is, you know, eighteen hundreds, um, which is great. As a matter of fact, what I found interesting is that for one of your books, it was the music hall book, uh, mm -hmm. Dangerous Duet. Yes, you found one of the original music halls that still exist and you got a chance to walk through it. I did. I did. Wilton's music hall. It's in Grace's um Grace's 
Allie, Grace's Lane, it's in Whitechapel, you know, near where the Jack the Ripper murders happened. I mean, it's all gentrified now, of course, but the Victorian Music Hall stands. And when I when I found it, I mean, the reason I found out about it actually was I went to the Royal Academy of Music because the whole premise of that book was based on Fanny Dickens, Charles's older sister. She had been a very gifted musician. And uh, I mean, like she studied with one of Beethoven's prodigies, like that wow. kind of gifted musician. Yeah. But uh, it was 1820s and the Dickens family was notoriously sort of in and out of debt and she didn't have money for tuition. So she ended up having to quit her studies at the Royal Academy. But um, and so when I went there actually to the Royal Academy just to you know visit and see what it was like and that kind of thing. And um, there happened to be a whole uh, there's a little museum within it and there was a whole presentation on music halls. And when I got talking to the librarian, got to love librarians. I love librarians. And she says, oh, well, did you know that there's still one music hall that is in existence that still puts on plays and is still used in movie sets and MTV videos? And I mean, all kinds of things. She says it's Wilton's and it's not very far from here. You can walk. So after I kind of did my whole Royal Academy of Music thing, I headed down to Wilton's and I walked in and the floor Honestly, it was so cool. The floor was sodden with like all of the beer that had been spilled on it. It was soft and mushy and and there was a nail and I tripped over the nail and I thought, oh, that's got to go in my book. And then I walked around the corner and that there was the music hall and it was beautiful. You know, it's kind of a, it's done in this kind of um, dusty blue color with lots of gold. And there were all these pillars because the original owner believed that, um, I believe it was he believed that if everything was done in patterns of five, it would protect against fire. And so he had, you know, for example, each one of the pillars has 25 turns on it. And there are, I think it's 10 pillars. And they actually moved the wall in so that it would be 65 feet instead of 68 feet from the stage. All this crazy stuff. I, I mean, who knows why? But to find all that information out and be able to actually get my hands on it and get my feet where the where those people walked and then I could set my, you know, I could set my novel there because I could stand there at the back of that hall and think, okay, I can put Nell Hallam in a piano alcove right over there. And she's going to earn money playing piano so that she can attend the Royal Academy. Of course, this is the 1870s. That's when the musicals were really big, not in the 1820s when Fanny Dickens didn't have that option. Yeah. And she's disguised as a man, as I understand, so that yes, she can do that. Yes, because the men got paid 20 shillings a week and the women got paid 10. Mm -hmm. And if I understand correctly, because I visited the website talking mm -hmm. about it, if you see the first Sherlock Holmes movie with Robert Downey Jr., yes. that hall is in there. They actually used it, of course, as as one of the sets. Yes, it's the one where um, there's a Cossack who's running around and, yeah. you know, it's mayhem. You know, he and he and Sherlock Holmes are chasing each other around this around this music hall. And that's that's Wilton's. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, let's uh, orient the reader okay. uh, to the to the books that you have out, because I understand you started with you have a series, not a series, but you have three books featuring um, female amateur detectives, yes. um, a lady in the smoke um, with uh, Lady Elizabeth Frazier. What can you tell us about her? I understand she was kind of unsuccessful at uh, the, at the seasons. Oh, alas, yes, poor Elizabeth. Um, so she, um, there's rumors going around that her fortune is not what it should be or what it was. And so she has an unsuccessful, I think it's her fourth season. And so 
uh, she and her mother, who is unfortunately addicted to laudanum, uh, get on a train and in 1874, uh, north of London, they're heading home and they're in a train wreck. And that's what sort of kicks off that book. So I, I really plundered my dissertation for that for that first novel. So, yeah. But yeah. each one of those first three books, you know, that, that one, A Dangerous Duet and A Trace of Deceit, each, um, you know, each one of them is about a young woman who is pulled into some sort of mystery because someone she loves is injured or murdered. Yeah. And, and they're part of a particular unique world. Of course, mm -hmm. Lady Lady Frazier is part of the, the gentry, the peerage. Mm -hmm. She's part of the aristocracy. So that forms her character as well as what she's able to do and not do. Yes. Uh, Nell Hallam being a pianist in, um, I'm going to say the smoke book. <laughs> no, dangerous duet. Yep. Thank mm -hmm. you. Dangerous duet. Yeah. I don't know why I say smoke there. I must have my notes are screwed up, but mm -hmm. she has, she's like 19. And mm -hmm. so you have scenes from the music world, the music hall world in there as well. And then uh, the painter Annabelle Rowe, in uh, uh, Trace of Deceit, mm -hmm. make sure I have that there as well. You have uh, the painting world, the auction world, art theft, forgery, government scandal. So you, it's like you picked a different part of the Victorian world and just set a story in it. Does that yes. sound right? Yes, yeah, that is an, that's a very adept description of it because I did begin with a, a certain aspect that I thought would be interesting to readers. And it was railways, music halls and thieving gangs, and then art and auction and forgery. Um, I had worked at Christie's auction house in the 1990s. And that was sort of the beginning point for my, for my, for my third book, A Trace of Deceit with Set in the Art World. Was there experiences there that you found applicable to your book? Yes. Uh, actually, in fact, there is one scene that is lifted almost directly out of real life. Um, there's all kinds of scandals at Christie's, which I'm not going to talk about. But the uh, the exciting thing that happened on November 11th, 1994, was there was going to be a rare book auction. And one of the pieces that was being auctioned was Leonardo da Vinci's Codex Hammer. It's a 32 page manuscript with the, um, the you know, the Metruvian man the in mm -hmm. the circle with his arms outstretched. Yep. And yep. that's on one of the pages. And mm -hmm. I, it happened to be my birthday. I was actually doing marketing work for them, but I snuck down the back hallway and I stood against the wall and watched the auction room while this piece was being sold. And Stephen Massey, who is the head of the rare books room, he was up, um, rare books department. He was up at the front of the room and the room was packed and everyone was murmuring. And there's all this kind of whispering. And, and, and then there was um, across the way, there was a phone bank. Um, this is still you know, very kind of old school, but it's the 90s. And uh, so there would be, for example, if someone wanted to bid but couldn't actually be in the room, they would be on the phone with one of the Christie's operators. And so they began the bidding, I think, around $6 million. And it went to 7 and then 8 and then 10 and then 12 and 14. And it's it's just mounting. And it's between one person in the room and one person on the phone. And it gets to $28 million and it goes to the person on the phone. $28 million. And I mean, it's an extraordinary, you know, one of a kind object, obviously, but it was, it's a lot of money. And so, um, you know, everyone's kind of finished murmuring and talking and everything else. And I go running up the back stairs because I've got to get back to work. And I hear some people talking and they, someone says, well, who did it? Who, who, who bought it? And they said, oh, it's like Bill Cates or something. He's in computers. 
Well, this is before Windows 95 came out, you know, so Bill Gates wasn't necessarily a household name. Anyway, so Bill Gates bought it. He separated all of the pages, put them between glass, and it toured the world. Um, so I think it started out in Japan or something, and, and he wanted people to see it. That's why I bought it. I think so, they, they renamed it the Gates Codex now, didn't they? They did. And then they changed it again, I think. Um, uh, I don't know what it's called now, but they, but you know, it was, it's, it's that, that moment. I mean, I, did, I got into Christie's because I did marketing. I didn't know anything about art. Like I didn't know a Modigliani from a Miro. I mean, like nothing. And I was, but standing there with my back to the wall with, you know, a bunch of journalists and all kinds of people milling around and watching that room and the energy that's around art was thrilling. And what I recognize is like, I like art. I like to go to museums. I appreciate it. And on a certain level from what I know, but what I really like are the stories around art, you know, the heists, the forgeries, the, you know, the, the, the bizarre, moments when someone buys something and it turns out to be something different or and there are all kinds of them you know they're really great stories out there about art oh yeah they the one that was a favorite of mine i put in a book called writers gone wild was the theft of the mona lisa in okay. 1912 that mm -hmm. involved pablo picasso because mm -hmm. he had a habit of going into the back rooms and just saying oh i'll take this object i'll take the and use them as kind of inspiration <laughs> for his paintings right and, and that was, again, that was so, so strange that somebody could walk into the museum and just say, oh, and just pick it up and walk out with it. Mm -hmm. Of course, you can't do that anymore. No, no. That's... Yeah. Um, and then let's see, that's the three books we've got. And now you've got the two books uh, featuring Inspector Michael Corvin, an mm -hmm. Irish detective for Scotland Yard. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Why did you switch to a male detective? Well, there are a couple of reasons. One of them was practical, which was that um, my editor had left HarperCollins for her dream job at another company. And so I wasn't going to be with HarperCollins anymore. Mm -hmm. And um, so, that, you know, I, wanted, I had to kind of break. I felt like I needed to break away from the mold. I needed to do something new and different and fresh. And I... I, the, those, you know, as you said, those first three books really had taken an aspect of Victorian culture and then said, OK, well, let me find a young woman. Let me put her in a problem and situate her. Down a Dark River began very, began very differently, um, to be honest. Uh, it began with a story that I found in, I believe it was a New Yorker. I threw the article away and I wish I could find it again. It was a story about injustice and the law in the United States in the present day. And it was about a young woman in Alabama who had been jaywalking across a quiet street. A car comes flying around the corner, hits her. The man is um, drunk. And he, she's put in the hospital for months. And when her family sues on her behalf, the judge awards her only $2,000. And um, the, so, so this, you know, wealthy white man in his expensive car got away with something. And, and so in the aftermath, I mean, that's a horrible story in and of itself. There's all kinds of things wrong there, but in the aftermath, the girl's father threatened the judge's daughter. And in that moment, it, it really pulled me up short. So, you know, and these are sometimes the, you know, when people, when writers talk about what inspires you to write a book, you know, it's the moments when you're like, kind of like, and you kind of feel your chest pull back and you're kind of, thinking to yourself, wow, that's, 
this is surprising. This is startling. This is, and this is, and it stuck with me for weeks afterwards. I was thinking about it because I, I came to the conclusion. I, I feel like he was trying to, you know, get the judge to understand what it was to almost lose a child. In some ways, this act of what looked sort of like revenge was a last ditch howl for empathy and understanding. So it got me thinking about injustice and failures of empathy and revenge and the links among those things. And then I thought, well, I, I need to figure out how do I set this in the Victorian period? Because that's where I live and that's where I belong. And so I I came up with, I had, and, and, and I wasn't 10 pages in writing when I realized I can't do this with an amateur woman sleuth. I, I need, I need, I mean, this is all about jurors and lawyers and doctors and men. And I need, I need a man. That's like the only time in my life I'm ever going to say that, but I needed a man. And so I created Michael Coravin and he's kind of a lot like Matthew Hallam in A Trace of Deceit. He's a Scotland Yard inspector, but Matthew, Matthew was kind of more of a middle-class, well-educated, a little more polished. Michael Coravin's rough around the edges. He grows up a former thief and bare knuckles boxer, a dock worker from Whitechapel, and he's 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 got his baggage. Yeah, and in the the second book, under a veiled under mm -hmm. a veiled moon, he's mm -hmm. we see. Some, and I have to say, I have to talk about it because this is the book I read. I had uh -huh. I didn't read sure. the first one, but I did yeah, yeah. read the second one. And he's part of an Irish family. Obviously, he's Irish himself. Mm -hmm. a and I I thought what what struck me about it is that they are Irish, but they're not talking. They're, they're, you, they're not talking in dialect. They're not talking stage Irish. They're not any, doing anything of the sort. Um, is that a, how did you decide how you wanted to handle the uh, Irish accent, the Irish, the Irish character? Um, to be honest, I, I tried to handle that with a very light, um, I kind of feathered that in here and there in bits and pieces, but I find I find if it were going to be only an audiobook, I might have made more of it. But reading dialect when you're dropping off letters and inserting, you know, it can be very uh, distracting. It can really pull you out. For me, it pulls me out of the story sometimes when I start having to read it out loud in order to understand what's going on. Um, but the other thing is that, um, you know, Michael Corvin, by age 31, he's been in the Scotland Yard or the Metropolitan Police for 12 years. And so he isn't really a product of just Whitechapel anymore. Mm -hmm. And when I was working on trying to find his voice, one of the things that I would do is I, I had some 1870s police reports and I would read them out loud to myself before I would begin writing in the morning. Because of course they're written by Victorian men, so just to try and get the cadence and the and the sound of them in my ear, um, I would begin to I begin to write that way. Yeah, I, I think it was a it was a great choice because I've uh, have read a lot of what you might call stage Irishman, um, mm -hmm. Mr. Dooley's columns in which mm -hmm. there he's he's writing in an accent that is absolutely impenetrable nowadays. You can't you shouldn't write like that. Mm -hmm. So better to be under than too much um the um i've lost my train of thought unfortunately oh um have you found a difference between writing a male character and a female character after this is there something that has come to mind yeah that's a that's a great question i think that 
I mean, my first three books, I feel like I was still figuring it out. And I think that um, young women, you know, who are thrown into problems probably drew a lot on the books I read as a child. Like um, I, I found them in my grandmother's library. I, we used to go there. I grew up in Rochester, New York, and they lived in Bergen, which was kind of the 20 minutes away. It's a, it's a very, very small rural town with one blinking light and one gas station and one convenience store. And that was pretty much it. And uh, so we would go out there on Sundays and, you know, I, the other adults would all play bridge and I'd be like, okay, well, what am I going to do? So I go, I go to my grandmother's library and she had a great library. It was, uh, it was sort of three sides and, um, you know, and then, the, you know, you walk in and there were three sides of books and there was a stone fireplace and there was this a uh, very eight, 1970s um, chair, you know, one of those ones that's kind of shaped like this that would rock back and forth, forward and back. And she had everything in there. She had history. She had bodice rippers. Uh, I discovered those later. She had Mary Stewart. She had Daphne du Maurier. And so the Daphne du Maurier, Mary Stewart, Victoria Holtz were all in this one shelf. And she pointed them out to me one day. I think she wanted to steer me away from the bodice rippers. And so I grabbed one of Mary Stewart's books. I think it was this rough magic. And I started reading and I, so every Sunday I would just go and I would pull down one of the books and I'd read the whole book. And that's what I would do. And then we would all have dinner and then we'd all go home. And I think that those books laid down a track in my brain that I really depended on for those first three books to help me structure them. You know, young woman um, in a, exotic location. I mean, to me, 1870s London was exotic. And she, you know, there's a romance, there's a trouble, there's a murder, you know, and she has to kind of find her way out of it. Yeah. I've, I've discovered from, of course, from reading your book, you're not really right. You're writing a historical novel on historical mystery with a romance. It's not a historical romance. Right. Although I do find, I, I find the way you've handled it um, very appealing. It's that there's, a comfort that you can get, especially like I, I assume, like for for Michael after a day out out there uh, mm -hmm. chasing bodies or or uh, uh, dealing with everything that he's dealing, having comfort in a relationship, and mm -hmm. that seems to be a very nice way of handling it in a historical context, mm -hmm. as opposed to what the demands are placed on the tropes of a romance. Right. right. Have you ever wanted to write a romance? it's it's funny that you ask that no no it's not it's 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 just it's just that uh i'm actually working on a standalone right now and the backbone of it not the first half so much uh when she's you know kind of going to london and becoming a thief and then um and then getting sent to a penal colony in australia in the 1850s uh but she um when she gets to the penal colony you know she meets someone and they fall in love and this so the second half of the book really is structured by a romance much more so than than these other books i mean in down a dark river and under a veiled moon you know he um the way he meets belinda gale is because someone throws a brick through her window in protest for um a woman that she had been inviting to her soirees uh it was a very um avid feminist who was speaking about birth control and so this person who threw the brick was like you, you know you shouldn't be having her at your soirees so i'm going to throw the brick break into your house tear your whole office apart and so he's called to the scene of the crime that's how they meet and she is she i i like belinda gale a lot she's one of my favorite characters because she's and she's based on four different 
women novelists of the period. So I sort of took pieces of Mary Elizabeth Braddon and Mrs. Henry Wood and George Eliot and kind of mushed them all together to make Belinda Gale. And oh, that's wonderful. Uh, yeah, and she's um, and she's she's an outlier. Uh, I mean, but there, I mean, there were a lot of women novelists who were actually supporting their families, you know, by their own work. And but she is an outlier in that she um, she had promised her father that she was not going to marry until she knew someone for a certain period of time, because he said that, you know, people change and you need to really know someone. And uh, anyway, so she's she's unusual. And yet uh, she's more usual. She's she won't necessarily find someone like her in Victorian fiction, but you will find someone like her in Victorian real life mm -hmm. in the 70s. There mm -hmm. were numerous women who yeah. lived very independent lives, mm -hmm. and some that they traveled to Arabia and wrote books yeah. about what they found there. Mm -hmm. And they, they are fascinating women. Yeah, absolutely. Are we going to see uh, Michael and Belinda again in another in another book later? You know, I'm really hoping so. My I haven't heard yet back from my publisher. I think that probably will depend on how these two books do. Yeah. But I'm hoping because I have a really good idea for one where Corvin is up against an all women thieving gang that's based on um, the 40 elephants, which operated out of Lambeth in the 1880s. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I hope you do. I hope you get another contract because I really like the books and I hope um, hope our readers will check them out. If they want to learn more about you, where can they find you? I have a website that hooks up to everything. Uh, it's www.karen, that's K-A-R-E-N, Odin with two Ds, O-D-D-E-N.com. And I also have a newsletter that comes out every six weeks that you can subscribe to. It always features a giveaway from another woman author and an essay by her. Okay. Um, it's just sort of my way of supporting other women authors. And I always have some of my book news and a writer's tip and that kind of stuff. Um, and it only comes out every six weeks because I, frankly, um, it takes a lot of time to put it together. So I don't do it very often. All right. Well, yeah. a half hour has passed very quickly. So I want to thank you, Karen, for talking with us at the Mechanicsburg Mystery Bookshop. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. And I hope for our people watching us, I hope that your best book is the one you're reading right now. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.